welcome. I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the Ethical Business Building the Future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. On today's program, we're discovering more about the ethical challenges of organizational governance. Doug Hank explains the challenges of doing business ethically around the world. Roxanne Stafford offers her perspectives on inclusive governance. But first, Augusto Lopez Claros is a senior World Bank official, but right now he's on sabbatical, serving as a senior fellow at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. What needs to change within corporate governance to form a better alignment with the needs of government? And then the second part of it, of course, is what needs to change within national governments to better align with the needs of globalized business. Very often, something that discourages uh, uh, the private sector um, from, uh, let's say, being, being more proactive in terms of fulfilling all their tax obligations and being more generous contributors to the budget of the nation state is the fact that there is a great deal of waste uh, of existing resources within the boundaries of the nation state. Let me give you an example. Today, in the world at large, we are spending, uh, governments are spending something like uh, $6.5 trillion every year subsidizing the consumption of gasoline, uh, carbon, electricity, natural gas, you know, energy, energy subsidies. Uh, these subsidies are highly regressive. What does that mean? It, they, they make income distribution uh, worse than it would otherwise be because a lot of these subsidies actually go to the upper levels of the income distribution. The IMF did a study a couple of years ago that showed that 61% of the benefits of gasoline subsidies actually go to the 20% 20, 20, uh, richest part of the income distribution. So from the perspective of, of the corporate sector, from the perspective of these large transnational companies that are you know, creating jobs and, and, and innovating and selling their products, uh, they see the state as being very much at the center of a gross misallocation of resources. And this creates a kind of a backlash. It creates a view on the private sector that, look, I have a choice here. You know, I can, I can be more generous in the way that I, that I fulfill my tax obligations, and, and then some of this money is going to be spent basically in ways that are essentially harmful and, and wasteful. Right? And so there is a role here for the, for the government uh, in, in, in many parts of the world, especially in the developing countries, to be more efficient, to, be, to, to implement uh, economic policies that are more sensible, that uh, eliminate some of these gross misallocation of resources. And as they do that, they may well find that the corporate sector is going to be perhaps uh, more willing uh, and ready to pay its fair share. Uh, there are countries where this is already happening, by the way. Um, there are countries where the government and the corporate sector have entered into what I call a kind of a virtuous circle where um, companies pay their taxes, the government uses the resources effectively, they invest in education, they invest in infrastructure, they invest in research and development and support in higher education, um, in public health and so on. And as a result of these policies, you have a labor force that is relatively well-trained uh, from which the private sector can, can hire and tap into and so on. 
And so you get into this into this uh, sort of cycle where the government and the corporate sector are working effectively, you know, towards the same end, which is to increase national prosperity. The other aspect as well is that governments should constantly be thinking about what we economists call the opportunity cost of a, of a particular subsidy. One should also raise the secondary question, which is basically, might there be alternative ways of spending these resources, which are actually, in the longer term, might be more beneficial to the very poor people who, are, who I'm trying to protect? In other words, there is a, there is a need you know, for uh, a much better, not only targeting of, of these subsidies, but also a need for questioning from time to time whether the particular structure of expenditures that the state has is the most adequate to promote the goals of equity and poverty alleviation and, and you know, giving opportunity to, to people. Is it possible for global corporations to influence those decisions? Or is, is it this overwhelming sentiment of, of national sovereignty, going back to nationalism versus globalism, that we have to deal with, where government would say, well, it's, this is actually none of your business? What we do? No, I think I think that there is a, a scope for for you know much greater collaboration between between the government and the business community. Um, I think that the business community should be engaged in in maintaining an open line of communication and dialogue with government about its policies. Um, and I think that governments uh, should seek out to have this dialogue with the corporate sector. The private sector on average in the world creates 90% of all, of, all, of all the jobs in the world, which basically means that the private sector, when it works effectively, it, it actually empowers the government uh, by uh, you know, generating the revenue and the taxes that then the government can use uh, you know, to promote a variety of different policies. Nations that are prosperous are nations where where the government and the business community have worked closely together in identifying priorities and in uh, maintaining open lines of communication, you know, for, for the benefit of improving the quality of social and other policy. Roxanne Stafford has had a diverse career in international aid, human rights, and community building. She is presently the director of programs for Matter, a capital fund and accelerator for media startup companies. She has a lot to say about creating governance structures that include everyone. How do we make governance more inclusive of all of the stakeholders, whether it's a for-profit, a non-profit, um, a national government, a city government, you know, governance as the generic term? Yeah, you know, I think it's um, interesting to start thinking about that from multiple perspectives because governance means different things to different people. So I think one of the first things is to make sure that whoever you're gathering together, uh, that there's a clear understanding of of the goals that we're going after, how we would want to work together, and how decisions are made. Um, I feel like those three things are um, the most important aspects of defining governance. Um, and if you don't have conversations and the ability to really understand those things in place, it makes it very difficult to be effective, let alone make sure you're inclusive of different types of stakeholders. Um, and I'm not just talking about um, different types of stakeholders from the standpoint of you know, professional backgrounds, um, but also as you're thinking about the the different learning styles, communication styles people have, um, the cultures and communities in which they grew up in, um, and how 
um, the work that you're trying to do. Again, if you're gathering different groups of people together to collaborate, um, it, it's really important to have those three things in place. Once uh, there is a recognition of a shared value that's going to occur, more people are like likely to give of their time, of their resources, help you shape that. And that's very true to populations that are usually disenfranchised uh, and not considered as part of that process. How does governance itself change when people from lots of different diverse populations are included? It becomes something that actually reflects what the communities want to do. So uh, governance is about stewardship and service. And I think more often than not, um, it is seen as something to the effect of seizing power, um, dominating, um, and being smarter or better, right? But when we um, think about it from a standpoint of service, uh, the inclusion aspect becomes natural, right? Because you understand that what you're trying to set up and do is for the value and benefit of others. And if you want to know the right direction to go, you want to understand creative, innovative practices in order to be able to do that. You need people who have different life experiences, different backgrounds to be a part of that. Um, so it really fuels um, the right type of innovation that's necessary. And when you're talking about governance, especially when it comes to um, business um, as well as in government, um, innovation is something that's so important. Um, and if you don't have people who are different from you, who think differently from you, you're not going to be able to come up with those great innovative solutions, let alone the systems that need to be around those solutions in order for them to be sustainable. How do people struggle with this, though? It, it, you know, this all sounds very nice. And we would like to think that this, this happens a lot, and maybe it does, but what are the elements that are keeping this from happening? How do people struggle with this? Well, I think there's a, a number of things. You know, sometimes folks say, well, we just don't have enough time, right? It, it, it'll slow down the process if we invite X, Y, and Z, or if we have a campaign that explains to people why why we're looking at the data and collecting data in this way, right? So some people... Um, feel like it's just impossible from those types of standpoints. Others, and this is where it gets really disheartening, um, feel a sense of inherent superiority. So they feel that certain populations, um, maybe because of their religious background, their racial or ethnic background, their age, um, shouldn't have a seat at the table, right? They don't deserve it. They don't have the prerequisite, excuse me, knowledge or abilities to be able to do that. And that really is disheartening. And again, it, it goes back to, um, these diseases of the heart and mind, like racism and sexism, that prevent us from being able to do this. People are uncomfortable when you know you have the clash of differing opinions coming together, and and we know that when you have differing opinions, that's when the spark of truth is born. Um, and for many people, they haven't been exposed to processes where they understand that you can think differently and propose an idea differently, and that doesn't mean you're against somebody or that person's against you. Um, and so the more that we can help people understand consultation, the more that we can give people opportunities um, to really uh, align on what they're trying to achieve versus feeling it's about me um, exceeding over other people, I think a lot of these difficulties that we have around governance as a whole, let alone when we're talking about being more inclusive, we can really start to solve them. And now, Doug Hank worked in the insurance industry for 40 years. He spent much of his career in Asia and is the chairman of the Asian Corporate Governance Association. Here, he shares his views 
on questions and struggles around ethical corporate governance. The Asian Corporate Governance Association, I'll call ACGA, uh, was founded about 20 years ago in the wake of the uh, financial crisis of 1997, often called the Asian financial crisis. The founder felt that that crisis was fundamentally a result of a failure of corporate governance in the Asia region. What was the catalyzing event that caused this association to form? I remember it well, because we were in Hong Kong, this was 1997, and the news, events, the discussion on the streets, everything was dominated by the handover of Hong Kong back to China, which occurred on the 1st of July, 1997. On the 2nd of July, 1997, the very next day, the Thai bot, the currency in Thailand, collapsed. That was the beginning of the financial crisis. It spread like a, a contagion throughout the region and, in many respects, throughout the world. The, um, the founder felt, and I think with good evidence, that when he looked at why the Thailand economy fell, why the others quickly fell like dominoes, was the fact that there was almost nothing in the laws nor in the practices with respect to basic corporate governance principles. Independent auditors, audit committees, uh, the most basic of regulations were virtually non-existent at the time. And so he started ACGA as, a, as a, an organization whose purpose, or vision perhaps, is to improve corporate governance practices in Asia. And I think over the past 20 years, we've had some success. It's a bit of a never-ending journey, but we've definitely had some success. But this has a spiritual component, so can you talk about that? I think one element, you're asking about a spiritual principle. Yeah. And I, I think the one element would be that um, when you look at violations of corporate governance, inevitably you're looking at one stakeholder cheating another stakeholder in a win-lose element. In my view and in my... And it's intentional, right? It's, it, yes, it's intentional. It's intentional certainly to get the advantage for yourself, not necessarily to disadvantage another one. But inevitably that's the result is that one stakeholder takes advantage of another one. The, as one philosophy I've had in business for quite a while is that ethical decisions can be defined as those decisions that executives make where all of the stakeholders are taken into account. It's a sense of unity, if you will, where uh, I'm trying to do my best to balance the needs of all the stakeholders at an organization. Now, I was in the insurance industry for 40 years. If I charge a dollar more for premium, then that's good for the shareholder. It's bad for the customer. But if I charge too much more, then the customer doesn't buy. So there's always a balance that you're trying to achieve. And in my view, if you, if you uh, provide fair returns and fair benefits to the customer if management and the employees are paid fairly according to the marketplace and so forth, then you, you can find those balancing elements. Corporate governance is part of that. It's about balancing the needs of the stakeholders. Where does the spiritual context come in? It's a hard question because uh, the business world generally, uh, and, and in Asia particularly, still have a number of participants who who go by the axiom that um, the only purpose for business is to maximize profits for the shareholder. You know, that, that is, and particularly in these family-owned businesses or these uh, closely held corporations, that's what they'll do. Uh, and so this notion of the stakeholder model, which uh, is reasonably well accepted in the West as a model, not always the one that is practiced, but certainly a model, is a little less prevalent in Asia. And so I'm not sure, to be honest, that, that 
people who are practicing the good corporate governance are are motivated by the spiritual principle. And so the the ACGA has had to provide evidence that it's in your best interest to do so no matter what principle you're managing by. <laughs> I think all of us have a moral compass and a dividing line that just says this is right or wrong. Go back to my stakeholder. Are you cheating? Are you cheating the other stakeholders? But what is the one thing if you could choose one thing that would address large amounts of corruption, what would that be? Very hard to choose one thing, but I, I think the approach one has to take is transparency. It's internal and external accountability. It, it's, it's being transparent about what's going on. I, I'll give you an example. I, I have been involved at various times in my career with going to Washington, D.C. and talking to various elected officials about issues in Asia, trade issues, issues with Hong Kong's independence, that sort of thing. And if, as part of that, I ask a staff member to go off and, here, I'll buy you a hamburger, I'm not allowed to do that. And to me, that's just silly. It's just silly. Some staff member is not going to change his mind because I've bought him a hamburger at lunch, right? But the transparency is important, right? So if, by contrast, like the former governor of Virginia, I'm I'm suddenly getting you know, free jet rides or yacht cruises yeah. or vacations in the islands and so forth, then, again, the transparency, I think, would get, would, would get you a long way to being there because if that individual is not – I can justify the hamburger. We just went out. I, you know, I make more money than he did. I bought him a hamburger, right? I mean, that, so what, right? On the other hand, this vacation in a Caribbean island, is that going to pass the headline test, right? I mean, the, 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 is that really going to be something that if all the facts were known, you'd really like that discussed? I think that goes a long way, and I, I think that the approach Transparency International uses is a good start to that. When you're talking about business and ethics, then as, a, as an executive, you're well on your way to an ethical decision if you try to balance the needs of the stakeholders, and by which I mean suppliers and distributors and employees and uh, agents and certainly customers and shareholders, uh, management, so if you're trying to balance those needs, then I think just that deliberation process itself is going to move you much more likely towards an ethical decision. Corruption is a very clear example of where you have one stakeholder taking advantage of another stakeholder. It's a win-lose proposition. And when you get into those win-lose propositions, rather than a unifying, balance the needs of the stakeholders, win-win-win kind of a proposition, then you're on a very difficult path. Who are your stakeholders? What are their various needs? And how is it this decision you're about to make affects each one of them? Start with that process and move forward from there. Thank you for joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening.